Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor, and uh, this is kind of a special, or at least an early recording, uh, because of all the uh, very, very dramatic events of the past few days, or the past, as we record this, really, the past 24 hours. Uh, but very excited to be joined by Scott Nover, a reporter here at Adweek who covers platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and uh, and we will be talking about essentially how those platforms have reacted uh, since the events at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, and uh, and so, Scott, uh, we've had you on quite a few times uh, often to talk about how the platforms are responding to the president. Um, this may or may not be the last time, but yeah. uh, it's great to have you back. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thanks, David. I feel like I'm only on when something terrible or traumatic happens and uh, we uh, record outside the confines of your normal schedule. But uh, happy to do it. <laughs> Someday you're going to be like, hey, I'm, I'm actually here to talk about shoppable tweets. Uh, <laughs> so this, uh, yeah. I think we uh, we probably don't need to, uh, you know, revisit everything uh, that happened, but just the obviously the brief brief context so that everyone will understand where we're picking up this conversation. Uh, there was a uh, Trump led a rally in Washington, D.C. that uh, many of his supporters had been preparing for, had visited the city for. And then that very, very large crowd moved to the U.S. Capitol, where the Senate was in the process of verifying the results uh, and they had of the election. And they had been planning uh, for some debate, some lively debate about uh, from the Republican senators who felt uh, that there were election irregularities that needed to be discussed in that process. Uh, but this crowd, uh, that, that process had to be uh, interrupted. Uh, very dramatically when the crowd burst through the doors of the Capitol uh, and essentially invaded it uh, with almost little to no uh, obstruction from the Capitol Police, uh, who seemed to have focused their efforts on evacuating the Senate, evacuating the staff, thankfully also evacuating the Electoral College official results. Uh, So all of those were safely removed. But they did not put up much of a defense of the Capitol building itself. And soon uh, this large crowd of uh, protesters, rioters, uh, had taken over uh, the Capitol. Uh, and it was many hours before they were expelled. Uh, Scott, um, let's talk about, I guess we can jump since we want to kind of focus on the social media response. Um when did Trump first really start tweeting about this? It felt like, uh, if I, if memory serves, the crowd had already burst into the uh, Capitol uh, when he he began even tweeting much about this at all. 
So he was kind of tweeting all day. And when I say tweeting, it, it goes to show that, like, I believe his campaign or his his staff reposts all of his tweets on other social media. So whatever, whenever I say tweeting, he's it's also on Facebook and uh, and Instagram in some form usually. So, yeah, he was basically tweeting all day about you know, various things about the election being rigged, which, of course, it was not. Um, and then this bizarre conspiracy that um, or theory that uh, that Vice President Mike Pence had the the power um, to overturn the results of the election. So he was tweeting angrily about Chuck Todd. He was uh, tweeting angrily about his own vice president. Um, and then every basically every tweet and post was kind of fanning the flames that there had been some sort of election um, that the election was rigged when it was not. And uh, it was very much seen by everyone as egging on the giant crowd of uh, of his supporters that were uh, marching through the streets of D.C. where I live. Um, and so it was uh, it was an affair that started that was going on all day. But I think it really picked up and the gravity of the situation really intensified when the protesters, and that's a very, very generous um, term, um, started swarming the Capitol first from the outside and then broke in. Yeah, and I, and I should note on semantics because there's been a lot of debate about this and a lot of discussion, both in media circles and just uh, and just normal social media discussion. Um, you, you know, we're, I don't think I can't speak for Scott. I'm not going to shy away from calling uh, the folks that burst into the Capitol domestic terrorists or rioters or a coup attempt. Uh, I'm fine with all of those. Uh, per, mm-hmm. On a personal level, I think if you invade our Capitol building illegally, uh, all of those terms apply. And also after uh, bombs were found in the city, a noose was uh, erected near the Capitol, among many other uh, horrible things. Uh, what, you know, There was some photo footage of someone who had brought uh, quick ties, uh, which seemed prepared to take hostages. Uh, so while we may refer to various terms uh, throughout this conversation, I just wanted to be clear that uh, if we call these folks rioters, protesters, whatever, it, none of that is because we're somehow trying to walk a nuanced line <laughs> of re- respecting them or something. Uh, yeah. These are criminals. and yeah. yeah, certainly the people who burst through the Capitol doors, um, you know, you could use all of those terms, CNN, um, who is usually pretty conservative about, um, you know, the use of such terms is calling uh, those people domestic terrorists. Um, so I don't think it's far-fetched to do the same um, by any means. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are certainly peaceful protesters amongst them, but, you know, amongst the entirety of the, you know, Trump supporters that were in town, but certainly the people that we're referring to in this podcast, um, uh, I don't think we should give that, you know, level of deference. So um, the, I, I feel like I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, this is subjective, but I feel like Mike Pence's decision to not uh, attempt whatever it is that the, the president thought he could attempt, uh, you know, he has a very procedural role as the president of the Senate to simply uh, verify that the count is the count. Uh, he opted not to uh, follow the, pre- the what the president had been tweeting multiple times, uh, urging uh, Mike Pence to not verify to, uh, you know, basically overturn the election results. Uh, Mike Pence in the end opted not to do that, said he did not have the constitutional authority. But that felt like a bit of a, a tipping point in all of this, Scott, uh, because and there were there were reports in uh, the New York Times reported that several people said they were looking for Mike Pence when they went into the Capitol building, that they were specifically trying to find him. But that seemed to be the moment that, I don't know, to me, was like a trigger for those folks to really turn this into something far more uh, dangerous than a, a protest in the streets of D.C. 
Yeah, I can't get into the head of of, of the people there, but certainly, um, you know, the Trump presidency has been filled with conspiracy theories that have been fueled by, you know, algorithmic spread on social media. And um, Trump has made everyone his enemy. It's a classic political tool. Um, And naturally, the last person on the line, um, you know, that he was going to be attacking is his literal vice president. Um, and so I think that it's it makes a lot of sense that that is, you know, one of these flashpoints of the end of the um, of the Trump presidency and certainly in its final days that, you know, he's looking more and more towards his, as his circle is kind of closing in even to his vice president. And um, and I think his followers certainly knew that and went to the Capitol for a reason. I, I feel like this was I'm sure I I'm sure there are disasters, uh, you know, major world events that that we have watched in this manner. But this was a really complicated one. I, I basically, you know, canceled all of my my work plans, all of my all of all of everything. I, you know, I, I stopped everything to watch this unfold in real time. That was a challenge because, you know, I had the the NBC, NBC News uh, live stream going. But I don't think to, you know, this certainly isn't a criticism of any broadcast news who were very brave and, and accomplished a lot that day. But, you know, people carrying large cameras were not going to get the story of what was really happening here. I felt like it was really within social media that we were watching this story unfold through live photos, live videos. I don't think you could get a sense of the scope of how really awful and dramatic it was if you weren't watching it happen in social media. Yeah. And thank God for the Capitol Hill Press Corps. I mean, their job is never easy, but uh, yesterday of all days and, and this whole week, I mean, um, thank God for them. And but yeah, I, I personally I live in I live in downtown Washington, D.C. and only about two miles from the Capitol, a little bit closer to the White House. And I turned on the news. I turned on CNN um, to basically when I saw that um, people were swarming the Capitol and CNN didn't even have it. They didn't even expect it. Um, they were still carrying Mitch McConnell's remarks um, on the Senate floor and Ted Cruz's and Chuck Schumer's and Amy Klobuchar's. Um, and meanwhile, on social media, which is naturally always you know going to be faster, I saw you know views of something I've just never seen before. Um, the Capitol really be swarming with people and people who had broken into the building eventually and had broken into the, you know, uh, onto the scaffolding of the building. And so the people on the ground, uh, either reporters outside with, you know, covering the protest, also those that were inside the, the chambers covering the momentous event of certifying this election, which has been widely anticipated, um, you know, really were the eyes and ears of the ordeal. And um, and even and, and a lot of photographers, a lot of things that weren't captured on video were captured in still images, a lot of incredible Getty photos um, that we've seen from the event. So um, every every kind of facet of the press corps on Capitol Hill and those that kind of um, congregated there um, really did, were were pivotal to telling this entire story as the rest of us kind of piece it together from the outside. I have a bit of a dumb question because I've seen it come up a lot, but what is Gab? Gab. <laughs> Gab is a, um, you've heard of Parler, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, the um, conservative. So, or, okay, you know, so it's uh, basically, yeah. the best way to describe it is Parler from two years ago. Um, Gab is basically the uh, the same kind of um, 
uh, conservative message board, social media, uh, website. Um, and yeah, I, I would just liken it's a parlor. It's a, it's a place where there is, um, there have been a, a series of social media websites or platforms, however you want to call them, that have been committed to, you know, being a conservative alternative to the social media websites because the social media websites are allegedly too liberal and censorous. And, um, and, and these provide a place for true, unfiltered, unfettered free speech, which is not true either. Um, and so Gab is one of them. Parlor is one of them. And, um, and, and those exist outside the you know, normal confines of the social media websites that we, we normally talk about, like Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, it seems like uh, a lot of the reporting I saw today talked about uh, participants. Uh, and we certainly saw some of the content being posted directly by uh, the people storming into the Capitol building. Uh, but I saw in the coverage, it was saying that a lot of the organi- organizing, a lot of the messaging back and forth, a lot of the what the New York Times mentioned as, uh, you know, people looking specifically to go find Mike Pence, that a lot of that was being communicated on Gab. Uh, sure. I had to admit, I was, wasn't familiar with it. I mean, I think I have an account from back in the day when it first started, but uh, it's just really accessible when you have a social media site that's that unfiltered. I mean, it's just kind of a lot of spam and craziness. Um, but aside from that, I mean, you don't have to look that far to find um, this kind of content or even this kind of organizing. And I think that's kind of one of the sadder things is that um, you don't have to go to Gab or Parler or 4chan or 8chan um, or, you know, you can you can find Stop the Steal Reddit, um, Facebook, sorry, Stop the Steal Facebook groups, um, which Facebook has been trying to quash, but they're still, you know, basically these these protests being organized on you know, in fa- private Facebook groups a lot of the time, uh, which are a little bit less moderated and regulated. Um, so, you know, the this stuff is everywhere on the internet, wherever allows it to, to flourish. So let, let's get back to Donald Trump. So once it had become clear that this was uh, a very dramatic incident, and we've seen footage now posted by his own son that, uh, that they were all kind of in a very celebratory mood watching the protest. Um, you know, I've seen some people describe that footage as being during the attack on the Capitol, but uh, other people have said, no, that's from before, before it had gotten, uh, violent. Uh, but still, you know, they were obviously in a very celebratory mood watching this gigantic crowd gather. Uh, and, uh, then what was his first kind of surfacing on Twitter, uh, once, once it was clear this was a, a legitimate, uh, assault on the Capitol? I mean, it really took him hours to say anything even resembling, you know, a, a quelling of, of what was going on. I mean, really, it was just silence as a lot of other people. I mean, he tweeted things of continuing to tweet like nothing was happening about the um, election, uh, as he's been doing for weeks and months. But um, he really didn't, um, you know, he really wasn't, uh, he wasn't saying, you know, he wasn't telling his supporters to back down. And then kind of a lot of people, uh, certainly his critics, but also a lot of his former supporters or current supporters were actively calling on him uh, in a way that he could not ignore or his inner circle could not ignore to say something and to tell them to stop. Um, It includes Mick Mulvaney, the former chief of staff of the White House, um, and Alyssa Farah, one of his top former communications aides, uh, Kellyanne Conway, 
one of his you know most senior advisors until recently, uh, all kind of begging him to to stop what was going on, uh, and certainly members of Congress who were evacuating and sheltering in place. Um, and so at a certain point, it was really his silence, but he was still, you know, tweeting basically, you know, that the election was rigged. And so eventually he was tweeting kind of some things to attempt to, you know, calm them down or, or get them out of there. And I think the first thing was telling him to respect, you know, the police officers in the Capitol. And then eventually... Uh, it took until Joe Biden, the president-elect, uh, gave a speech, you know, asking him to act until Donald Trump responded. And the manners which with, with which they did those things are very, very interesting. Um, so Don, Joe Biden gave a live televised address behind a podium and, you know, used strong language to kind of tell him, tell Donald Trump to, you know, act and to uh, get his supporters to back down. And um, and then Donald Trump, his response was to record this like Twitter video or social media video from the front lawn um, uh, or the 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 lawn of the White House. Um, And it was not any sort of full condemnation of the activities of the Capitol. He was still saying that the election was rigged and they're trying to steal it from us, but you should go home. You know, it was really uh, to call it half-hearted was uh, would be a stretch. I, I think some would accurately call it the opposite of a condemnation. Uh, you know, he literally said, uh, "I love you. You are special." Oh yeah. <laughs> um, those those phrases. I remember watching it and being like, "Well, this is not a very good uh, speech." If he's trying to get these folks to explain the law and order aspect of it's okay to protest, but you can't do this, uh, and then all of a sudden he said that part, and I just. And this is saying a lot in the Donald Trump era, especially four years deep into the Donald Trump era. I was, it brought me to a halt. You know what I mean? Like just hearing him say, I love you, you are special. And I kept thinking about that again today when we saw um, social posts and and, uh, at least I was seeing it in social media of some of these leaders of the conspiracy movement within government, uh, some of the leaders who've really been championing this idea that there's a conspiracy to overturn the election, or, well, I guess they're the ones overturning it, but, you know, conspiracy. Uh, Mo Brooks, who, uh, Alabama representative who represents, I'm sad to say, my home district, uh, where I was born and raised, uh, he was tweeting, uh, these were actually Antifa, and these were all, um, you know, these weren't actually Trump supporters, but meanwhile, you've got you know, Trump saying, I love you. You're special. He obviously had no problems with, you know, that would have been his moment to say, if you're really my supporter, you would never do such a thing. He did not say that. No. And it, it just comes back to the kind of the organizing principle of Donald Trump's politics is himself and love for himself. And whether that's narcissism or, you know, um, egging on his supporters or encouraging his supporters, it all has to do with that. You know, there's no, he has no ability or, interest or care in um, in condemning anything that's related to his praise. And, you know, obviously he egged the, you know, them to march on the Capitol. Um, but when it came time for him to to say, you know, don't don't literally raid the Capitol and invade the Speaker of the House's desk and the, you know, president of the Senate's, you know, uh, desk, you know, he, he was unable 
uh, he was unable to actually bring himself to condemn people who love him. So tell us about the, th- I believe there were three tweets at issue that got him um, basically suspended from Twitter until he agreed to delete those tweets. What was the nature of those tweets? Yeah, I mean, they weren't they weren't his worst tweets ever. They were just kind of, it was more about the context of when they were tweeted, <laughs> which was really as these people were marching to the Capitol and through the Capitol. Um, and so they were just mostly about, you know, Mike Pence not, um, not uh, overturning the election and other instances of election fraud that didn't actually happen. Um, and so the context is really important. So I think when we talk about the, the ban and the removal of these tweets and posts, it's important to know that they were taken down far after they actually happened. So um, I don't know that their effect was was really stymied in any way. Well, so that began this uh, wave, uh, obviously, why we're here today. Sorry to make everybody wait 20 minutes into this conversation. <laughs> but, uh, but obviously, this is when the platforms really began to uh, lock down his messaging and his accounts, something they have been, uh, I, I, I feel it's fair to say, reluctant to do up till now, right? Yeah, um, that's to say the least. Um, I think, I mean, until this year, until 2020, the social media accounts really did nothing on Donald Trump. And only this year, and we've talked about it on this podcast and um, and other fora, you know, only this year, uh, Twitter and, and by proxy, um, Facebook have started to take action on Donald Trump's tweets uh, and posts. So, yeah, I mean, what exa- what, what happened was first um, Twitter and Facebook removed the tweets that they thought were offending, the posts that they thought were offending um, and inciting violence, which they arguably were. Uh, and then Facebook and Twitter each announced a temporary lock on Donald Trump's account. So he could not post for a certain amount of time. Twitter's was 12 hours. Facebook's was 24 hours. And YouTube uh, didn't block him, but they took down the, the same video uh, as well. And so it, it kind of started to avalanche after that. Uh, and this morning, that didn't stop at all. Yeah, and I want to read some of Mark Zuckerberg's uh, post in which he announced um, the that this is a per- – well, I mean, effectively, I don't know if I could call it permanent, but they were locking him out of Facebook, locking uh, Donald Trump out of Facebook until – at least until the transition of power, right? Yeah. So uh, pretty – I mean, I'm going to say a pretty good post in a world where social executives um, – Tech executives are reluctant and and almost absent from making strong statements about the president. Um, they've certainly appeared on Capitol Hill plenty of times, as as Scott knows better than anybody. Uh, but I, I was surprised at the kind of bluntness and and uh, and. I don't know. Well, I will read some of uh, Mark Zuckerberg's comment here. That we're re- recording this on Thursday. I believe it was posted this morning, uh, Thursday morning. It says, The shocking events of the last 24 hours clearly demonstrate that President Donald Trump intends to use his remaining time in office to undermine the peaceful and lawful transition of power to his elected successor, Joe Biden. His decision to use the, his platform to condone rather than condemn the actions of his supporters at the Capitol building has rightly disturbed people in the U.S. and around the world. We removed these statements yesterday because we judged that their effect and likely their intent would be to provoke further violence. Uh, and then he talks a bit about the the importance of the transition power. 
says, over the last several years, we've allowed President Trump to use our platform consistent with our own rules, at times removing content or labeling his posts when they violate our policies. We did this because we believe that the public has a right to the broadcast, uh, to the broadest possible access to political speech, even controversial speech. But the current context is now fundamentally different, involving use of our platform to incite violent insurrection against a democratically elected government. We believe the risks of allowing the president to continue to use our service during this period are simply too great. Therefore, we are extending the block we have placed on his Facebook and Instagram accounts indefinitely, and for at least the next two weeks into the peaceful transition of power is complete. Uh, that is the end of, of uh, Mark Zuckerberg's statement. Um, Scott, were you surprised by this? I really thought Facebook would just kind of sit this one out, honestly. I don't know. Um, I'm not surprised. Okay, so Facebook has been, I mean, to say that Mark Zuckerberg has been absent on the Donald Trump question, you know, Donald Trump's, you know, account and what he's been posting is an understatement. Um, he has been incredibly reluctant to do anything to curb Donald Trump's ability to post freely on his account. And only after really the pandemic started and Twitter started making uh, tougher calls and uh, advertisers started boycotting Facebook. Has Facebook even started to, you know, take, you know, remove Donald Trump's tw uh, posts and ads and other vile and label the, the the word label is is even more generous for Facebook. Um, label his posts. Um, so it's surprising. But it's also very opportunistic as well. I mean, that being, you know, so, yeah, I, I think let me pause there and say it's incredibly important that, you know, the statement that he made and what he's trying to do and the message that Zuckerberg is trying to send. He's saying that this is a pivotal moment and democracy is at stake and the peaceful transition of power will not be interrupted because of the president being on Facebook. Right. Full stop. Great. You know, I I. You know, as journalists, we, you know, are slanted towards the, the continuation of democracy, the thing that lets us do our jobs. Uh, and so that is objectively a good thing that um, Facebook cares about the continuity of our American democracy. But, um, you know, it, it is opportunistic as well. Facebook is a business. Uh, they are not compelled to do anything by the government in terms of uh, the allowance of speech, even from elected officials or especially from elected officials. Um, and so guess what? Donald Trump is going to be leaving office in 13 days on January 20th. And it's not surprising that Facebook is changing its tune um, as the president is leaving office. They have they're done with him for all their, they, they have no lobbying left to do. They have no, um, you know, regulatory scheme to uh, appease. Joe Biden is coming in. The Democrats control the Senate. They control the House. And they effectively control government, the people that are going to legislate and regulate them. So it's a good business move on their part. And I think that's important to say. I think, you know, it, it's just easier to make a call when there's two weeks left in a presidency than four years. And so I think that that should be considered um, as we, you know, I think rightfully say, praise Facebook for taking a stand in favor of democracy. And, but it hasn't been, you know, this is not a cons policy that's been consistent with any of their behavior um, for the last four years or longer going back to Donald Trump's candidacy. 
Well, I think I certainly agree with you uh, on all except, I don't know if this is a disagreement with you, but I think it's an interesting point too, that the platforms have really talked about the importance of, of consistent policy. And Donald Trump and, and a few other world leaders, not just Trump, but mostly Trump, have really tested this policy consistently and and frequently, right? So um, the, their argument has largely been, although they phrase it differently, that world leaders uh, can be held to different rules. If and, and this has been tested, it's been proven that if you as a normal citizen user tweet the same things that Donald Trump tweets, you will be suspended from any one of these platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, their argument has been, well, he's a world leader, and in the public good, as as Mark Zuckerberg mentions, that uh, that having access to a world leader's uh, statements is important to the to the way democracies function. Uh, but now they're saying, uh, and so to your point, I think it's toothless and, and a bit cowardly, maybe to wait till someone is a lame duck and and only two weeks out to say, no, we're done with him. But they've also set a precedent now, right? That that being a world leader does not make you invulnerable to policy decisions. I feel like assuming that that they're they stick to that, that could have repercussions for well beyond America, right? Like there are considerable uh, you know dictatorial leaders around the world who frequently follow uh, this playbook of using social media to share uh, very uh, incendiary uh, comments. So I don't know. I feel like this is a bit of a of a shift, not just on Trump, but on a, a bigger policy thing that that he has kind of triggered the discussion on in the first place. I think it's important first to say that what we're talking about here is is very specific to America because the worst abuses on Facebook have happened overseas. Um, you know, you can look at the, the genocide in Myanmar, for one, that was kind of incited on Facebook by government leaders. So I think I, I just want to put that in a separate bucket and come back to America. Um, I think you're right. I think that... Um, it's more about enforcement than policy. Facebook and Twitter, for that matter, have always said, like, we believe that there is a right for for world leaders to post on our website um, as long as they follow, you know, there's exceptions for some rules, but there won't be exceptions for all rules. And one of those rules that there's never been an exception for, at least according to their policies, is inciting violence. And so I want to go back to June of this year where we were, we definitely were talking about this on this podcast. Oh, you um, mean last year? It's 2021. Oh God. It's, it's, it's still the same year and you know that. So don't lie to me. It's still the same. It's still 2016, I think. Um, no, but, but in June or May 30th or something like that, there was a huge pivotal moment in that we explored on this podcast in which, uh, Donald Trump tweeted and posted on Twitter and Facebook, respectively, when the shooting starts, the looting starts. And that was directly in relation to the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests that were starting in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And what happened when he did that, which was a clear kind of incitement of violence, is that or at least Twitter called it glorifying violence because they have a separate rule. Um, But Twitter basically said you know, you cannot incite violence on our platform. And for the first time, they they hid his tweet behind this like warning label and you had to click through it and you couldn't like it and you couldn't reply to it. It was there if you needed to see it in this in, a, in the name of newsworthiness and the public interest. But it wasn't 
a functional tweet as we know it didn't spread algorithmically in a meaningful way. Um, and then what happened next was really important. Facebook didn't do anything. Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg personally said he did not think that that tweet incited violence. He didn't think it, it caused, you know, which was a almost not so veiled way of saying, you know, I'm going to send the National Guard at peaceful protesters if, if I see a building looted, um, which had already been going on. Um, and so Mark Zuckerberg did not think that. And that set off a entire slew of activity that we talked about and I reported on all summer in which uh, social media companies took harder stances on on Donald Trump and on hate speech and misinformation. Reddit banned hate speech. It kicked the Donald off. The uh, Snapchat stopped promoting Donald Trump. Twitch suspended him for a, a minute. Um, all these Twitter uh, later, started labeling like all of his tweets as, uh, you know, offending in one way or another. And Facebook was kind of left playing catch up. And only after this, you know, 1000 advertiser strong boycott and, you know, a lot of pressure from regulators and legislators and civil rights groups did Facebook actually start taking harder action. So it's more about I know this is a long way of saying it, but this is more about. Le- it's it's less about how they and what their policies are on paper and more about how they enforce it. And I don't see I see the decision in June or May about the George Floyd protests um, and the one today or yesterday about, um, you know, about Trump inciting violence in Congress as an about face, uh, to put it lightly. Um, and so I think it's a good about face. I think that um Facebook was wrong to not um, to not take action on the original and was right to to do what they did yesterday and today. But Facebook is changing the rules as they go or changing their enforcement of those rules, even if they're written down and the wording of them doesn't change. And I think that's really important to understand. Well, and it's also worth mentioning uh, the threat that no longer hangs over their head, not just the general presence of Donald Trump and needing to kowtow to him. Um, but just this threat of revoking Section 230, right, um, which always feels very Star Wars to me every time I hear it said out loud. But it's like, um, y- you know, this was a uh, provision in the law that pr- that protects social platforms uh, from, you know, said, well, I should let you describe it, Scott, since you were the expert. I am the expert. No, um, I'm not an expert. But um – Okay, so yeah, let me explain Section 230, and then let me, then I'll kind of tell you how it changes or doesn't. Um, Section 230 is part of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. It is a set of liability protections for internet companies that host, um, uh, you know, user-generated comments or third-party uh, posts. And so that could be anything from the comment section of your favorite news site, like the New York Times, or it could be a Facebook or a Wikipedia or anything where third parties that are not the the company themselves are posting. And so it removes some of the liability so that individuals who are harmed by, let's say, defamation or some other civil wrong uh, can can seek uh, damages and sue the person who who posted on that platform, but can't sue the platform itself. And that's kind of been seen as this way that has allowed Facebook and you know Twitter and all of these successful companies, the YouTube, to grow bigger. Um, and Donald Trump and has 
taken a personal fascination to this section of the law in recent in recent weeks and months, but it's also been um, illegitimately discussed policy issue on both sides of the aisle, which there are there is some sort of bipartisan consensus in some ways that something needs to be changed about Section 230 in order to make social media companies or internet companies more accountable to uh, the people. Um, but Donald Trump has weaponized it in a way that is personally, you know, a way to exact revenge on Twitter and other sites for things he doesn't like online. So, you know, I, but I wouldn't say um, that it goes away when he leaves. Um, Joe Biden has said that he wants to get rid of Section 230. Um, I don't know how serious that comment is, and it probably will change when he actually takes office. And tech policy has not been a significant part of his platform at all. Um, But, uh, you know, I don't, but also Donald Trump tried to get rid of it, and he can't because he can't legislate. He's an executive, and it's part of the law. So um, the tantrums and the threats to veto uh, defense spending bills about Section 230, that will go away. But Section 230 is an interesting thing that we can talk about on a future episode, and I'll certainly be writing about, uh, that, that won't go away. In fact, that there might be some sort of bipartisan consensus in at least amending it. You probably will not see a full repeal of it, but it could change in the future. All right. Well, let's uh, before we wrap up here, let's catch up of where we are at time of recording, which, of course, is a big caveat. Uh, What all has uh, Donald Trump been locked out of? Okay, here we go. He's been locked out of Twitter. Uh, It was supposed to be 12 hours, but he still hasn't posted and Twitter still hasn't said anything. So um, TBD on that one. That's the big question mark. But he's not allowed to post or use his Facebook account in any way until after the inauguration. And that includes Instagram as well. That's huge um, because he still has a huge audience on Facebook and Instagram. It's just not his favorite platform. Um, he cannot uh, – his Twitch account, which his, his campaign and his uh, administration were used to like live stream his rallies has been suspended. His Snapchat has uh, taken away uh, – has temporarily suspended his account until after the inauguration as well. And then Shopify um, has uh, actually probably done uh, most financial damage, has stopped him from selling merchandise through his stores, which use the Shopify platform. Uh, And our colleague Lisa Lacey was covering that for us today, which is a fascinating story in its own. Um, So he's kind of being hamstrung by different companies that all host his content. And... It's just I, I think it's a matter of time until Twitter, you know, says he can't post until after the election, any until after the inauguration anyway. But we're seeing a uh, response from the social media companies that uh, is consistent with the outrage in Washington from Republicans, from Democrats and most Republicans. Um, and that comes from external pressure, but it also comes from um internal pressure in these companies as well. We talked about Facebook already, but there's some great reporting from BuzzFeed News and some other outlets that are saying uh, that there's been a huge amount of internal pressure uh, on Mark Zuckerberg and other Facebook leaders to really, you know, take action because the events of yesterday were um, truly horrifying and, and, uh, and, and have significant threats to the peaceful transition of power in our democracy. And just to wrap up, I want to... Um 
because I'm not sure everyone understands the context of this. Uh, I live on Twitter all day, and I still didn't, don't thankfully see the scope of this. I, and I'm I'm going to ask you to get into Trump's head maybe a little bit here, which is always difficult. But like, I'm curious what this is doing to him. This social media lockout, social media, namely Twitter, is such a defining part, uh, not only of his presidency but of his daily life. Uh, this is a man who has tweeted more than 200 times in one day. Uh, like I'm bad on Twitter, but I'm I've never been Same. more than 200 times in a day bad. No. Um, I mean, so so I think some people may not understand that when we say he tweets a lot, we, we don't mean like in the normal way of like that guy tweeted seven times in a day. He needs to go back to work. We're talking 100 to 200 times a day. Um, and so what do you think this is doing uh, to him? And I know you, I know you have no special insight into the Don Trump, Donald Trump psyche, but like, you know what I mean? It's I just I'm just like. I'm almost kind of worried, not not for him as a person, but just like, like it just feels like when you when you wrap a firecracker in a bunch of duct tape or something, and and then it just blows up a hundred times worse. Like, what do you think this is doing to him? Before I get into this, I want to say Donald Trump can still speak. Um, the uh, the actions of social media companies are not censoring him in any meaningful way. That. Um, you know, uh, we should be concerned about in a, the long term. This is an exceptional case. And if he wants to speak, I am sure that there will be cameras ready, at least from his friends at Fox News, but certainly other cable, you know, uh, and other news outlets. Um, so he will find an audience if he would like to speak. That being said, you cannot overstate how ingrained Donald Trump and his Twitter account are. I mean, they are inseparable what he thinks he tweets and um that's been you know as uh, we can't get into his actual brain but he barely sleeps he's just tweeting all night he tweets all day every day that's how he um says what he's feeling and that's how he um lashes out at people and attacks people and calls people in names it's how he does politics it's how he uh issues policy recommendations. Uh, it's how he tells his staff what to do. I mean, his staff literally find out sometimes what they're doing that day based on what he's tweeting. Um, he communicates better with that little box with the 280 characters than his own ad advisors. He, you know, has certainly has the ability to start wars on that platform, and he has conducted foreign policy on Twitter. So, I mean, we used to, I think, call the the Obama presidency, the, the Twitter presidency, right? You know, or at least the Blackberry presidency or one of those things. Um, but I mean, Donald Trump takes it to an entirely new level. And I think that it is probably killing him in a emotional way that he can't communicate with his supporters, um, which, you know, they're not all on Twitter, but that's effectively how he speaks to them. He's not on Parler or Gab or 4chan or QAnon message boards. Um, so I think that he can speak and he will when he's ready, I think. But um, it's a huge blow. And so I think it's a really important thing to watch um, what Twitter does in this moment for the next 13 days as he's still president. And then afterwards, if they take any sort of decisive action in terms of banning his account permanently or, you know, 
anything like that because, you know, he lives and breathes on Twitter and he has for a long time before his presidency. Um, and so we'll have to wait and see. Well, Scott Nover, Platforms reporter for Adweek. Uh, it's been a very busy week for you, as it seems like it's very been very busy four years for you. But uh, thank you for making time for us this week. It's always a pleasure, David. Thanks so much. All right. Well, we are out of time today. Uh, if you'd like to drop us a note on your thoughts about any of this, you can reach us at podcast at adweek.com, podcast at adweek.com. I did not mention at the top of the show, but our co-host, Co-M, is out uh, today. So that was the only reason she could not join, but I'm sure she will be back shortly. Um, and uh, and again, thanks to Scott for making time on short notice uh, to jump in on this call. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by me, David Kreiner, and edited by Lane McGibney. Uh, if you have not already, please leave us a review on uh, Apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts those reviews mean a lot to us personally and they help new listeners discover the show for adweek i'm david griner and we will be back next week 